Amen. Hey, as you turn to lesson number five, but it's really topic number seven, we are once again in our study, World Religions, Cults, and the Occult. And of course, our seventh topic is none other than rhymes with Roman Catholicism. Anybody? Roll a man, you guys, or I tell you what, scholars or something. Uh, but anyway, Roman Catholicism is right. And as you turn to the exciting uh, workbook there, uh, we saw last time, of course, the big words that were there, hopefully you underlined it, is Roman Catholicism uh, is the same thing as biblical Christianity. No, it's not. No, it's not. Now I have your attention. Praise God for paying attention. It is not the same thing as Christianity. In fact, if we saw there, we made it past the first paragraph. Woo! I was excited. We might get a second paragraph tonight. Yeah, dare we dream. Uh, but we saw it's a major pseudo-Christian religion. What pseudo? means fake. It means false. It's not the same thing as biblical Christianity. And the very last word there that is used there in that first paragraph is the word it rhymes with what? Cults. Okay? And that's the theme of tonight. We are seeing that Roman Catholicism last week is not only a fake false version of Christianity, okay, we are going to see they fit both secular and Christian definitions of a cult, okay, and that's what we're going to see tonight, and basically, I love the way one guy puts it, if I could make it that far in my notes, that the Protestant Reformation was basically a reaction movement away from the cults, i.e. Roman Catholicism, okay? And it may sound harsh because people have been brainwashed today with the media, once again, nine times out of ten. And now for the Christian voice. Who do they call him? A Catholic priest. And people think, oh, it's the same. No, it's not. And it's not just a false religion. We're going to see tonight, uh, Roman Catholicism is a cult, a cult on two different levels. But let's take a look at that in the second paragraph. A cult is sometimes difficult to define, as there are many definitions to choose from. The non-Christian definition, this is the first aspect, the non-Christian definition of a cult usually is focused on sociological, psychological, or behavioral factors. According to these factors, a cult is, listen, a religious group that seeks to what? Underline that word, control its members. Does Roman Catholicism do that? Absolutely. It's about control, about fear, Okay, so it fits that secular definition of a cult. And it does it either by a single individual or the organization. What's the organization that controls and manipulates people in Roman Catholicism? The Vatican, right? So it does both of those aspects. And that's the secular definition of a cult. The cult is manipulative and demands total commitment. Right? Total commitment and loyalty of the followers. Is that what Roman Catholicism does? Absolutely. Okay, even truly Christian uh, groups can be cult-like in their use of manipulation and demands of loyalty. That's where we would call in Protestantism, people do that, uh, legalism and things of that nature, right? You can't go bowling because that eye, the, the bowling ball is really the eye of the devil as it rolls down there. You know, it's like if all these, yeah, every church, you can't wear that or you got to wear this or ladies, you... Okay, that, that's getting into legalism, okay? But now let's go to the, the uh, Christian definition. The standard evangelical definition, okay, <clears throat> of a Christian cult is any group that, what? Deviates from biblical Christianity in the fundamental doctrines of the faith. Now, does Roman Catholicism do that? Yeah, how many strikes did we see uh, last week? And we're just getting started. How many false teachings coming from this uh, entity, 
Okay, so it fits the secular definition of the way they control and control the single individual with the, uh, the, the organization, etc. Also, the evangelical definition, they deviate from biblical uh, truth. And that could be on the issue of the source of authority, the nature of God, including the Trinity, the person or work of Christ, the nature of man, the means of salvation. You get any one of those wrong, you are classified evangelical. So Christian definition, that's a cult. That is a cult. That's a sign. When people have a problem with the Trinity, that's a cult. When they get the wrong source of authority, that's the cult. That's a cult, right? It's not just the Bible. It's the Bible and this and that. And that's what they do too. But that's what cults do, okay? When you get the wrong version of salvation, that's a cult, right? When, when you get the wrong version of who God is, the work of Jesus Christ. And that's usually where they get wrong. The deity Christ or the humanity Christ. Instead of what we would believe, what the Bible believes, God, Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. And they usually get one or the other wrong. That's a cult. All right? I'm not making this up. This is the secular definition of a cult. This is now the evangelical definition of a cult. Roman Catholicism fits both. So I know it may sound harsh. They're not just a pseudo-fake false Christian religion, okay? They are defined on two different levels. They are a cult, right? Sounds harsh, but that's the facts. And I think it'll be clear once we get done uh, tonight, all right? Let's go. In many cases, these groups may use, listen, they may use the same words as true Christians, but underline the final three words. They radically redefine them. They radically redefine them. And isn't that the truth? Right? Whether it's a Mormon, whether Jehovah's Witness, they come knocking your door, or Roman Catholicism, and what do you say? Oh, I believe in Jesus. What do all three of those groups say? I do too. But their version of Jesus, their version of salvation, it's completely different. They redefine them. You have to go behind that. Okay? And the way that they redefine them classifies them as a cult. Now, let me give you some examples, okay? And I'm going to focus, first of all, first of all, on the evangelical definition of a cult. What? Any group, any group that deviates from biblical Christianity, the fundamental foundations of our faith, is a cult. So, let me just rip through just very quickly. Here's some things that Roman Catholicism teaches, okay? You tell me if it deviates, which puts them in the cult category. The bishops, with the pope as their head, rule the universal church. So, is that the structure of authority according to the Bible? No, who's the head of the church? Jesus Christ and him alone. Okay, so you got that one wrong. They believe that God has entrusted revelation to the bishops. Only they, it's called the magisterium. We'll get to that in a second, Lord willing. Only they have the right to interpret the scriptures. Is that what the Bible says? No, and that's the benefit of us. Anybody can, and that's what the reformers, we ended up last week, died, were strangled, were buried, burned alive, drowned, all that stuff, just to get the Bible in a common person's hand to read for ourselves. But that's what they, that's a deviation. The Pope is infallible in his teaching. Is a mere man perfect in all that he says and does? No, so that's a deviation. And again, these are deviations. And what's the definition of a cult? Any group that deviates from biblical truth. And I'm just mentioning three. I got a long ways to go. So not my words. According to secular definitions, the evangelical definition, who is also a cult then? Roman Catholicism. Okay, Scripture, they believe, and tradition, Okay, as well as the church councils and the early church fathers, are the word of God. Is that what we believe? Is that what the Bible teaches? What is the only word of God? Just the Bible. So you got that wrong. Mary, they believe, is co-redeemer for she participated with Christ in the painful act of redemption. What? That's their teaching. Is that a deviation? 
That's the sign of a cult. Mary, they also believe, is the co-mediator to whom we can entrust all our cares and petitions. Is that what the Bible teaches? One mediator, and who's that? Jesus, is that a deviation? Absolutely. Initial justification is by means of baptism. Are we justified by being baptized? And of course, their version is infant baptism. No, that's a double no. Well, how does a child know what he's doing, right? In the first place, let alone, but you're not saved by uh, baptism. It's, baptism is symbolic. Adults must prepare for justification through faith and good works. Are we justified by our works and good deeds? No. Grace, they believe, is merited by good works. Is that how we receive God's? No, it's by faith that we receive uh, God's grace. Salvation, they believe, is attained by cooperating with grace through faith, good works, and participation in the sacraments. Is that how that happens? No. Listen to this one. Roman Catholicism, we saw a little bit this last week. No one can know if he will attain to eternal life. What? What did John say? I write these things to you children so that you may know that you have eternal life. Is that a deviation? Absolutely. The Roman Catholic Church is necessary for salvation. You have to be a part. No? Got that one wrong too. I'm still going. Christ's body and blood exist wholly and entirely in every fragment of consecrated bread and wine in every Roman Catholic church around the world. His real body, is it? That's a deviation. The sacrifice of the cross is perpetuated in the sacrifice of the mass. No, that was one event for one time, once for all, Hebrews says. Okay, Each sacrifice of the mass appeases God's wrath against sin. Excuse me, the mass appeases God's wrath for sin? What appeases God's wrath for sin? One-time sacrifice, Jesus on the cross. Is that a de- these are, And again, these aren't just, I like black robes, you like blue robes, right? And we're having robe wars, right? No, no, it's not a secondary issue. Every single one of these is a salvation or salvific issue, right? Every single one. This is a major, major deviation off the truth. Not my definition, the secular definition, the evangelical definition, just like Mormonism, just like Jehovah's Witnesses, who therefore, by their own belief system, fits the category of a cult. Roman Catholicism. I'm not making this up. And this is what gets me because, again, I, it bugs me. And, and I think it should bug us with at least that, you know, that, that exciting word that we assume that that's what we're doing when somebody cuts us off on the road. Righteous indignation. Yeah, I just, that's probably not what's going on there. It's called the flesh. Okay, but typically when you see God's truth defamed, and people being deviated, led in the wrong path, which is a big issue, which leads to hell. That should fire us up. And it fires me up when I see people in there, and again, I'll use the example, and now for the Christian voice, and it's a Catholic priest. I'm not, nothing against that guy per se as a person, but that's not Christianity. And if you allow him a voice on the media, in mass, and if in fact what they're teaching is leading people away from the only way to heaven, which they are, it doesn't rile you up, okay? And, and that's what's going on here. So they fit the classic definition of cult. Now, not just in their belief system, but it's also in their verbiage, okay? Their verbiage is a, a sign that they are deviating from the truth, hence a cult, all right? Absolution, that's a Catholic term. What's that mean? Quote, the act of releasing someone from their sin by God through the means of a priest. So is that how we're forgiven? Is that how our sins are removed? No, who, who, who do we go to? Jesus, do we go through a man? Do we go through a priest? No, right? So that's their assumption. That's their belief that the taking of the body and soul of Mary 
by God into glory. Catholic doctrine does not state whether or not Mary died, but tradition holds that she died and was immediately afterward assumed into heaven both body and soul. And so either way, you got it all wrong. Is that what we believe? Is that what the Bible teaches? That's a deviation. Baptism, here's their version. Because Oh, we believe in baptism. Well, here's their version of baptism. One of the seven sacraments that takes away original sin and actual sin. Does baptism remove any kind of sin? No. Okay, that's a deviation. That's the soul. And this is their ver- beautification, right? Beautification. This is what they mean by that. It's an official declaration of the Roman Catholic Church concerning a particular man or woman who, due to a holy life, may be venerated by a particular group of people. So is that what we do, that people can venerate us? And is that what the Bible says, that when we do our deeds, that it's all about being venerated by people long after we're dead? And No, and it gets even worse. They move to stage two, what's called canonization, and that's an infallible declaration by the Pope. Er, stop right there. So is the Pope infallible? Is any man on planet infallible? What's the Bible say? The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know? Only God can. We can None of us are perfect, not the Pope, sorry. And that, but this is an infallible declaration by the Pope that a particular Catholic who was previously beautified, the first step, beautification, is worthy now of veneration by the entire Roman Catholic Church. Is that a deviation? Slightly, and this is in their verbiage. Confession, their ver- is confessing of sin good? Right? Homologeo, hamas, meaning the same. As in Hamas sexuality, same sexuality, Hamas, Lagos word, same word. When we confess, the Greek word means we're saying the same thing. What do you mean? God already knows. He's just waiting for us to confess, right? It's like when your parent, right, catches you. They already know, and you already know they know because they're doing this and they're doing that, (laughs) right? So what are they waiting for you? They already know you did it. You need to Hamas Lagos. You need to confess. You need to say the same thing. You need to own up to it. That's the biblical definition, right? That we confess our sins. We're saying the same thing that God says about it. It was wrong, and I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me, right? Now, their version of that, telling sins to a priest, and the Lord forgives the person through the priest. Is that the same thing? No, it's not. Confessional, and that's the little uh, compartment that you got. So you can only do this in a certain religious atmosphere, in a religious building, uh, in a religious box, talking to a religious guy with a religious garb. Is that how we get rid of him? No. Confirmation. Right? That's a ceremony performed by a bishop that is, listen, supposed to strengthen a person to enable him to resist sin. Excuse me, how do we resist sin? The power of the Holy Spirit, being indwelled with the Spirit of God. You walk and live and keep in step with the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's a work of the Spirit, not some ritual you go through. It's usually done at the age of 12, and the bishop dips his right thumb in holy oil and anoints the on the forehead by making the sign of the cross and says, listen, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. So is that how we receive the Holy Spirit? No. How do you receive the Holy Spirit? At the moment of salvation, Ephesians says you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says it's God's guarantee, his pledge. In fact, it's the Greek word arbon, which means engagement ring. You get that at the moment of salvation, not when you turn 12 by some guy putting some oil on your head. That's wrong. That's double wrong. Julia. Julia is their word that you give honor to saints and angels. Do we worship and give honor to saints and angels? No. In fact, they got another one. It's called hyperdulia, and that's to honor and praise given to Mary. 
Mary, I'm sure, was a great godly woman, but guess what? Read the Gospel of Luke. We'll get into this, Lord willing, later. Uh, she said, praise God, my Savior. When Jesus was born, she sang her Magnificat, right? And there, Luke chapter 1, she admitted she needed a Savior, i.e. that she was a sinner, right? So she was just like the rest of us. I'm sure a great, wonderful woman, and what a, what a ministry, and what a, a great privilege to uh, be the vessel for the Messiah to come. I, I get that. But guess what? She needed a Savior just like the rest of us. Right? But do we worship saints? Do we worship dead people? Oh, by the way, the whole saint issue. We've talked about this how many times? Saint is the Greek word hagios, which means holy one. And you read the scripture, and that's any Christian. How many of you guys married tonight? How many of you guys married with your spouse? Man, only a couple of you can do this exciting technique. You ready? Turn to your spouse and say, hey, man, you're a saint. And that would be awfully hard if you had an intense moments of fellowship driving into study tonight. But it's probably good for your relationship, so do it anyway. But it's also good Bible, because what? The Bible says anyone who's a born-again Christian, you're a saint, you're a hagias, it means holy one. Because we have the imputed righteousness, the holiness of Christ placed upon us. We're holy because of Christ. Every Christian, not after you long die, and some religious entity determines that you're a saint and then tells other people to pray to you or worship you. What? Complete uh, misunderstanding of that. Again, that's a deviation. Eucharistic adoration. In case they get the, the communion wrong, which they call it Eucharist. Man, if we can get that far, wait till you hear where that came from. Okay. The practice where the, quote, blessed sacrament, the Eucharist, uh, which they again believe becomes literally the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ right then and there, all, every single time repeatedly, uh, all over the world, is displayed in, uh, at, and adored by Catholics. Do we literally adore the elements as if it's the actual body? We do this, he says, in remembrance of me. It is a special time. It's a great time. But we do it in remembrance, and it's not his literal body. It's symbolic. But we don't sit there and go through this adoration of these uh, elements of that nature. Of course, the old uh, Hail Mary. Do we pray to Mary again? No. Uh, Holy orders. That's one of the seven sacraments by which men, bishops, deacons, and priests are given the power and authority by another man, a bishop, to offer sacrifice and forgive sins. What? That's what the holy orders mean. Is that biblical? That's a deviation. Again, what's the theme? I'm not saying this. This is, I'm just going with the bare bones definition, secular and evangelical. Okay. If you got something that deviates from biblical truth, what do you got going on? You got a cult holy seat that's the final seat of authority for the entire roman catholic church located in rome and positioned under the headship of the pope so again is that where we get our final um authority from some some headquarters is telling us what to do okay hey let's give it up for bobby tonight bobby is an incredible guy because he has a gift with a stick okay he has the gift of the stick tonight and hopefully he will push that button and uh, for some reason, that thing blew out. But uh, we'll let him do that as we continue on. The Immaculate Conception, right? And that was that special play uh, by the Pittsburgh Steelers during that Super Bowl. With No, that was Immaculate Reception or whatever they call that, whatever. No, but this is not the virgin birth. A lot of people confuse this with the virgin birth. That's not what it is. Uh, the Immaculate Conception is the teaching that Mary was conceived herself without original sin. Is that true? Is that what we believe? Absolutely not. Hey, give it up for Bobby and the gift of the stick. You guys got a gift of the stick song? No pressure. Hey, Bobby, you should have had decaf. Blind but Oh, look at that. Ready, ready, ready? Yeah! Get it for Bobby! Woo! Right on. 
All right. But that is the Immaculate Conception. that They believe that Mary was conceived without sin. Is that true? Absolutely not. Indulgence. We, that was the bulk of our study last week. That there's certain things that you could do, works and behavior, that you can remove uh, the punishment for your sin, all or some. How does the sin get removed, the punishment of it? Only through Jesus Christ. Infallibility, again, that were the teachings of the church and the Rome, that is basically the same authority that carries with the Bible. Is that true? Is that biblical? Absolutely not. That's another deviation. Uh, again, the magisterium. We'll probably have a whole study on these kind of issues later. But the magisterium is the belief that the divinely appointed authority in the Catholic Church, consisting of the Pope and the bishops, listen, the magisterium alone, according to Catholicism, has the right to interpret the Word of God. Again, they're the only ones that can tell us what the Bible means. Is that what the Bible teaches? Absolutely not. And then, of course, with the Mass, and we've already dealt with that, that is uh, 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 their penance, penance. The means by which, this is their definition, the means by which all sins committed after baptism are removed. The means are signed by a priest and usually consist of special prayers or deeds performed by the sinner. Is that how we get rid of sins, period, let alone the sins that you committed after baptism? No. How do you get rid of sins? Still the same way, before and after baptism. It's only through Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, and, of course, the Pope, the whole thing of the Pope, also known, another term they have, vicar of Christ, that he is in place of Christ. He is the head over everything, and whatever he does is infallible in what he says and what he rules on. Is that what the Bible teaches? Absolutely not. Uh, how about, again, purgatory? Is that really a place of temporary punishment? You go and purge, purg, purge your sins, a place of Tory, a place of sins. You, you suffer and burn and whatever, and then if you give them enough cash, people can pray them out of there faster. We saw last week. They still do this today. Is that what we teach? Is that what the Bible teaches? Absolutely not. That's a deviation. If you deviate from biblical truth, the definition puts you in the category of a cult. I'm not making this up. And I'm telling you, we have to get this into our mind. We have to develop a heart that not only does not just not say Roman Catholicism, same thing as Christianity. No. But we need to go to step two. And just as I would assume all of us in here have a heart to reach the Mormon, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the other cults, we need to have the same heart for the Catholic who truly believes this. Because guess what? They're not going to heaven. I didn't say that. They did by definition of their so-called faith. It's not the same thing as Christianity, which means there's only one way, which means the penalty is you get it wrong, where do you go? Hell, this is a serious issue. But it's a pseudo-Christian group, and it's a cult. Uh, requiem, that's a mass that is offered for the dead. Do we do anything for people? Once a person is dead, is there anything you could do to them? Do we certainly pray to them? Absolutely not. But can we do anything, right? And you've heard sometimes, I'm not saying you got to be mean. Hey, they're burning in hell. You know, somebody that uh, they say, oh, my uh, so-and-so died. And, and uh, would you say a prayer for him? Anybody ever challenged, been challenged with that one? Maybe it's just me because I are a pastor. Okay, but, uh, you know, I'm not saying, you go, oh, sorry, too bad. They're in flames. You, know, you don't have to necessarily say that, but listen, that, it, it's an opportunity that I use. And I say, listen, what's done is done. Right? But the Bible is very clear. When you're in heaven, you're in heaven. When you're in hell, you're in hell. I don't know the person's heart, but that's what the Bible says. What we can do is we can pray all right, but we need to pray for the folks who remain and that they get saved so that they can know for sure that they can have eternal life and know that and that they're headed to heaven. So you can flip that around. Okay? But that's what they believe uh, that you can do. And, of course, the sacramental special prayers, special deeds, or special objects used to gain spiritual benefits from God. Is, is that what... Is that how we get benefits from God? You go through all that ritual? I shared with somebody, I think uh, last week, I had a guy that I used to work with when I was going to Bible college. And um, 
his uh, mother-in-law was a, a Catholic, and she passed away. And he was all kind of tore up about it, him and his wife. And, uh, but he came to me, and he, he uh, had uh, this confidence that she was in a, quote, better place. And you know what? He, and I'm not joking, and I didn't, like, rub his nose in it. But it literally broke my heart. But here was his confidence that his mother-in-law was in a better place. And he, he offered this up with a total straight face. He says, because, um, you know, she went to Mass on a pretty regular basis, and this was supposed to be the shoe-in. She had, a, 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 you know, a lot of figurines in her house. And she even had a priest come over and bless them. And I looked at him and going, oh, it just busted my heart. You know what? And that was just, it was, wow. Uh, the sign of the cross, that's a sacramental, that's the movement. You know, they, you see that all over the place, whatever. But is, is that going to give you some blessing? Hey, that's a blessing. We need to come up with all kinds of stuff. I'm going to be doing this all day. I need all as many blessings as I can get. Right? It's just, it's what? Rituals, behavior, that's not how you get it. Okay? It's through Jesus Christ. Now, listen to this. Again, we're still on the cult theme, Right? Let's do a comparison, right, with what we, I would assume, have no problem categorizing as a cult. Is Mormonism a cult? Is Jehovah's Witnesses a cult? Right? But guess what? So is Catholicism. Let's take a look at some interesting similarities, right, if what we've just seen is not enough. Uh, How about the uh, specific uh, church leader on earth? Catholicism, they have the Pope. Mormonism, the prophet. Jehovah's Witnesses, the watchtower organization. Christianity, nobody, except, of course, the headship of Christ. Okay, but that's a whole different thing. Source of theology. Okay, where do they get their truth from? Uh, Catholicism, they say the Bible, but it's also tradition, the Pope, and the rulings of the church councils, right? And, and things of that nature. Mormonism, they say it's the Bible, but it's also the Book of Mormon and things of that other uh, uh, additional rights. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they say the Bible, but their Bible is a perverted, twisted Bible, okay, that they literally have changed, okay, and the Watchtower organization. You and I, just the Bible, right? Uh, uh, some, just to sample their non-biblical teachings, Catholicism, purgatory, uh, penance, indulgences, praying to Mary, again, her assumption, Mormonisms, many gods, God from another world, goddess mother, that you can become a god. Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is the Michael, the archangel, no blood transfusions, no hell, and 144,000 go to heaven. Is that what We have none because what? If it ain't in the Bible, we don't believe it, Right? So it's a method of salvation. Catholicism works. Mormonism works. Jehovah's Witnesses works. Uh, Christianity, grace through faith. In the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Uh, the true church. Uh, they believe, Catholicism, that their church is the one true church. Mormonism, their church is the one true church. Jehovah's Witnesses, their church is the one true church. Christianity, all who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, they're a part of the true church in Christ. Total difference there. Claim of authority. They have what's called the Catholicism Apostolic Succession. That's a line of bishops that are supposed to stretch all the way back to the apostles. Is is that where you get authority from? Uh, uh, Mormonism, same thing. They have an apostolic succession. Jehovah's Witnesses, it's by being a faithful servant. I guess you earn uh, that, whatever. And us, no. Our authority is in Jesus Christ alone. Major difference. Assets. uh, Catholicism has great wealth and power. Mormonism, they got great wealth and power. Jehovah's Witnesses, they got wealth, but not much power, okay, is what's going on there. And give it up for the Stick Patrol 101, <laughs> right? Um, uh, Sir Stick-a-Lot. And, <laughs> but they have wealth, but not much power. But you and I, what's our assets? We got treasure in heaven. Amen? Okay. Uh, again, a uh, goddess-like figure. Listen to these similarities. Catholicism, Mary has God-like abilities, the ability to hear and answer all prayers of all people of all time and intercede with God. 
That's what they believe. Uh, believe it or not, Mormonism got that too. Goddess mother who has populated this world with spirits who inhabit human bodies. Okay? And this is the only thing that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and we would agree on. Uh, they don't buy into that and neither do we. Give it up for Sir Stick-A-Lot. Right on. And uh, images of uh, God, Mary, or Jesus, etc. Catholicism, they use them in their so-called uh, churches and services. Mormonism, they have all kinds of stuff to use in their temples and headquarters. In fact, Lord willing, that's the final section if we can ever get to that. Uh, but they also have a lot of symbolism with Freemasonry uh, that's uh, meshed into there. And of course, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, in theory, they don't, and we don't either. But we'll listen to what this guy said. This is it. He says, I find it disturbing to see the similarities between Roman Catholicism and the cults, right? He said, listen, I love this. The Protestant Reformation happened for a reason, to get back to biblical theology and to be rid of extra-biblical teaching. The, it, the Protestant Reformation, listen, was the counter-cult movement. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Because what? It was a counter-reaction to what? A major cult called Catholicism. Okay, and you know, we again we shared just a little bit of that. That was part of the Protestant Reformation to get away from the false teaching, the cult uh, stuff. But we still maintain some of our traditions that we have based on the reaction of getting out of that cult, right? And we talked a little bit about this back with with a couple folks there in the back. But I'll just share a couple things. One, uh, the there's a certain traditions that we do um, that uh, are reactionary from that. Let me give you one. One is right here where I'm pulpit. Why is the pulpit? Why do you always have the pulpit in Protestant churches right smack dab in the middle and typically the Bible right at the centerpiece? Well, that was part of what happened because a lot of the reformers were former Catholic monks or Catholic priests, right? And so where'd they go? They went back into their Catholic cathedrals, but they began to teach the Bible, the Word of God. And the first thing they did was uh, basically the lectern, typically the priests or the other people, they'd be high above the people, up above in the, the balcony area. And they'd be up there booming down to the people down below. And it's all symbolic. Because you go into a Catholic, it's all about emotion. It's all about, oh, because you've got to feel religious, right? The acoustics, the, the accompaniment, the, the burning incense and the candles and all the statues. And it just makes you feel and just enters into the thing. And so it all in the vestibule and all the things you wear. And, just, and how it's all set up is for all sake of an emotional religious appeal. So they're up there, whatever. So the first thing they did when they went in there is they ripped out that lectern out of it, and that's where we get this, and they plopped it right smack dab in the middle, and they put the Bible on the front, right on top. Symbol, uh, symbolic, that is the Bible alone. That's our source of authority. The other thing that they did is when they would have the mass there, typically they have a partition separating the people, uh, a wooden partition between the people, uh, and the priest behind doing the Eucharist thing. Rip that baby out, because now we're all one in Christ and that we have access, direct access to God. We don't have to go through a man. We go through Jesus Christ. So they ripped all that out. They also got rid of all the candles and the statues and all that other stuff. In fact, in the beginning, I remember I read some reports, in the beginning, they even got rid of all the pews and any kind of seating. And when you went to a Protestant church, the whole place, imagine, was completely gutted. The only thing, when you walked into that thing, you had a lectern, a podium, and you had a Bible, and a guy preached on it, and you stood. And you stood for a long time. But apparently they learned the old axiom that the uh, mind can only absorb what the uh, sea can endure or something, but, uh, or in this case, the feet. <laughs> so, the, so the benches came back, and that's what we have. But that's why we do what we do. It was a reactionary movement against what? A counter-cult movement. 
Okay, we were reacting to that. Now, the point is, where did all this come from? How in the world did the Catholic Church get into this, right? Because they make claims that, oh, no, they're the true church, and they go right back down to Peter, right? And it's been this way, and we're the one true church, the mother church, and all that, right? No. And what we're going to see is it's actually, you're seeing history being repeated today, okay? They are a, a counter movement of Christianity that started after a guy named Constantine, Okay, they are not the true church. Okay, they've never been the true church. They are a uh, spinoff after Constantine. Let me see if I can build my way up there. The Catholic Church proclaims itself to be the church that Jesus Christ died for, the original church, the uh, a true origin, etc. But is that true? No. What do we just read? Even a cursory reading of the New Testament will reveal that the Catholic Church did not have its origins in the teachings of Jesus or his apostles, uh, the New Testament, the Bible, the early church beliefs, none of that stuff. Why? Because there is no mention in the Bible from Jesus or the apostles or the early church of what they teach. There's no mention of the papacy, the worship and adoration of Mary, the immaculate conception of Mary, the perpetual virginity of Mary, the assumption of Mary or Mary as the co-redemptrix or, or, and mediatrix, the petitioning of saints in heaven for their prayers, the apostolic succession, the ordinances of the church, functionings as sacraments, infant baptism, confession of sin to a priest, purgatory, indulgences, or the equal authority of the church tradition with scripture. So if the origin of the Catholic church is not in the teachings of the early church, Jesus, the apostles, or in the New Testament, then how can you say it's the original church? It's not. So how in the world did it get started? It's this guy, Constantine, after him. Let me tell you what he did that led the groundwork for Roman Catholicism. For the first 280 years of Christian history, Christianity was banned by the Roman Empire, and Christians were terribly persecuted. Now, this changed after this guy, Constantine, appeared on the scene. Now, he reigned, he reigned as Roman emperor from 306 to 337 A.D. Now, there's an, a debate. Some would say, you talk to him and say, oh, he became a Christian. Others say, mm-mm. Uh, I'm kind of one of those that leans towards, mm-mm. I don't think so, but whatever. Uh, we'll let God be the ultimate judge on that. But let me, let me get on. Uh, the first recorded official persecution, remember the first 280, about 300 years of the church was birthed in heavy-duty persecution. Okay, And it came from the Roman Empire. Now, the first official persecution, Christians came on behalf in AD 64 when Emperor Nero attempted to blame Christians for the great fire in Rome. And according to church tradition, it was during the reign of Nero that Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome. Peter crucified church history, would say upside down, per his request. And Paul was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen and you couldn't crucify a Roman citizen. Christians suffered persecutions for, again, two and a half centuries, almost 300 years. The refusal to participate in an imperial cult. You had to go around and you had to basically take a pinch of incense and burn it uh, to Caesar, to pledge your worship to Caesar, right? You give your worship. Is that something we could do? No, right? And, and it's not a whole lot different, we'll get to that in a little bit, than uh, basically uh, the Catholic Church attitude towards the Pope. He's it, he's infallible, worship this guy, kiss his ring, kiss his feet, do whatever. Right? Christians uh, refused to do that. And, but Rome considered that an act of treason and thus was punished by execution. The most widespread official persecution of Christians carried out by a guy named Diocletian, and that was during 303 to 311. We're almost up to Constantine. 
The emperor ordered Diocletian Christian buildings and the homes of Christians to be torn down, their books collected and burned. Christians were arrested, tortured, mutilated, burned, starved, and condemned to the gladiatorial contest to amuse the spectators, right? Thrown to the lions, okay? Now, people would say that uh, Constantine's mother, that's 311, okay? He comes on the scene uh, shortly right after that, but they say that he got influenced to Christianity by his mom, Helena, Okay, whatever. Sources record that Constantine had a dramatic event in 312. So this is the year right after the Diocletian, the major worst uh, persecution. Been going on for a long time, but this, that was the major one. Now, here's the events, right? And this is what people say, well, hey, he, he became a Christian. Well, let's take a look at it. It was uh, the event in 312. It was the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, after which Constantine claimed uh, the emperorship of the West. After this battle, he won. He became the emperor in the West. Okay, but listen to what he attributed the victory to, right? According to these sources, Constantine looked up to the sun before the battle and saw a cross of light above it. How many guys ever made that unfortunate mistake when you're a kid? I would assume you haven't done it since you're an adult, but you looked at the sun. Man, you see crosses, you see dogs, you see all kinds of things and dots in your eyes, whatever. But anyways, he looks into the sun. He supposedly sees a cross with the Greek words that mean this, in this sign, you will conquer. So Constantine commanded his troops, and this is before the battle took place, he commanded his troops to adorn their shields with the Christian symbol Cairo. Cairo is the first two letters of the Greek word Christos, which is where we get Christ, which means anointed one. Right? It's the same thing, the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means Messiah, but Christos. And so that's Cairo. Kai is with the X and Rho with the P. And this is where you will see this today. He had this put on their shields. Looks like that. That's what he had put on the shields. Okay. Now, following the battle, of course, he won. So again, that's, hey, well, I guess this Christianity thing works. Right? Is, does that sound like a conversion? I don't know, not to me, but whatever. And so then after that, okay, he came out with what was called the Edict of Milan. Now, the Edict of Milan is an order that he put out that basically stopped the Christian persecution. But it wasn't just stopping the Christian persecution. He created universal belief. Here's the word that we would use today. It's happening today. It's called tolerance. All religions, which included Christianity that was getting persecuted, you could do whatever you want. That's what he brought in. That's what gave birth to the Catholic Church. All right. Now, uh, he said that it was proper that the Christians and all others should have liberty to follow that mode of religion which to each of them appeared best, granting tolerance to all religions, including uh, Christianity. Right? So uh, he opened up the door of the tolerance. Then, just before his death in 337, Constantine was, quote, baptized into Christianity. Quote, he believed that if he waited to get baptized on his deathbed, he was in less danger of polluting his soul with sin and not getting into heaven. So does that sound like you really understood the gospel? Got a problem with that, right? So you got that. But what he brought in with his attitude of tolerance in 313 with the Edict of Milan. Now, what he also did at the same time is he attempted to unify Christianity, and he envisioned that Christianity would, could be a convenient religion that could unite the Roman Empire, uh, and uh, which the Roman Empire at that time was beginning to fragment and divide. So we thought, well, maybe this religion could help us bring us together as a country. Uh, in 476, Rome would fall. 
So about 150 years later, it's going down the tubes or less. Okay, so he's thought that that's what Christianity could do. While this may have seemed to be a positive development for the Christian church, the results were anything but positive. Basically, in a nutshell, what he did was he basically stopped the persecution of the church. That was good, but he, he, he said it's all tolerant, right? All religions, anybody could believe whatever they want, right? And you could all begin to come together and merge together. Does that sound familiar? Our churches today trying to merge with other, quote, religions. Uh, yeah, okay. In fact, let me give you uh, just a, a quick example uh, of that. Representatives of the Jewish, Catholic, Protestant, Baha'i, Mormon, Sikh, Vedic, Druid, and Muslim beliefs, this was in Sacramento recently, uh, are all reading their scriptures, uh, religious texts uh, together in services, all of them, including verses from the Quran, uh, saying that all faiths can live in harmony. Is that what the Bible teaches? That's going on in the church. Hundreds, here's another one. Hundreds of Christians, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, and atheists have convened at the Northwoods Church in Texas, which is a Baptist church, in an effort to try to understand one another. This is what Constantine did. He brought in this tolerance, and let's all just come together and merge and unify. Right? And as you're going to see, it gave birth to the Catholic Church. A bishop right now is urging Christians to call God Allah. The Catholic leader believes it would help ease tension between the religions. It's just all merged together. Uh, Christians are now being invited right now in the United States uh, to celebrate, quote, religious diversity on Pentecost Sunday. Uh, they're called now, it's called progressive Christianity. And uh, they, quote, we don't claim that our religion, these are supposed to be Christians, we don't claim that our religion is superior to all others. Yeah, we don't, but Jesus does. John 14, 6, he's the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by him. I didn't say he did. Okay. Uh, and they say, we can grow closer to God in deeper compassion. We understand our own traditions better through greater awareness. And um, basically, they're calling it Pluralism Sunday. It needs to be an annual event that bring all the religions together. It's this, this is what Constantine did, right? He didn't Christianize Rome. He brought in this tolerance of all religions to come together under a unified power. Get to that in a second. Another one, uh, Barnard. Listen, this, this is what's happening. Right now in the church, one in four professing born-again Christians believe that all people are eventually saved or accepted by God. One-fourth of the church right now is infected with this tolerance. That, that's the current stat. 26% said that a person's religion doesn't matter because all faiths teach the same lesson. You wonder why we're going through this study. That's over a quarter of the church professing Christians believe it doesn't matter what faith you follow. And if that's really what you believe... And you think you can get there somewhere other than Jesus? And then those people, are you even saved? That's scary grounds, man. Right? And listen to this. An even higher proportion, 40%, these are professing Christians. 40% of born-again Christians say that they believe that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what we believe? Right? This is what Constantine brought in. Okay, and albeit it stopped the persecution of the church, that was good. But he brought in this attitude of universalism, tolerance, and we need a Roman figure to control it all and unify the empire, including not just the government, but the religions. Starting to sound familiar? I'll get to that in a second. Now, what happens is it began to, he began to at the same time paganize the church. In his unification process, he would basically say, well, how can we merge the two? Right? How can we take these pagan things and turn them into Christian things so that we can invite the pagans to join us in this universal worship? Right? 
Well, let me give you an analogy of this, what the effect that this had on the church, okay? The effect of the church is stop the persecution, but overnight, paganism came in, right? And so now the church became polluted with uh, the church. Uh, they say that the axiom is the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Why did the church grow so fast? Because back then, your life was on the line for being a Christian. Why is the church growing so fast over in China? Your life is on the line for being a Christian. So when you gather for church services, typically in those kind of places where there's heavy persecution, do you think you find a lot of phony Christians? No. So imagine an atmosphere where every single person is seriously on fire, dedicated for Jesus Christ, because your life's on the line. You either mean it or you don't. And when you get together, can you imagine the Spirit of God, what happens in those services? Can you imagine the power? And whoa, wow, because there's, there's, no, there's no mixture let me give you an analogy. One day, a 2,000-member Baptist church, 2,000, big old congregation, was filled to overflowing one Sunday morning. And on this day, the preacher, he was about to, uh, ready to start the sermon when two men dressed in long black coats and black hats entered through the, the back of the church sanctuary. And then one of the two men walked in the middle of the church there while the other one stayed at the back. And then all of a sudden, both of them reached in their coats and they pulled out machine guns. And then one in the middle, he shouted to everyone, the whole congregation, 2,000 members, everyone willing to take a bullet for Jesus, stay in your seats. Well, naturally, the pews emptied fast, followed by the choir. Then all the deacons ran out. Uh, then the choir director and the assistant pastor. Uh, and in just a few moments, there was only about 20 people left out of 2,000 sitting in the church with the pastor holding steady in the pulpit, naturally. <laughs> hey, it's my story. No. And it says, then all of a sudden, the men put their weapons away and said gently to the preacher, okay, pastor, all the hypocrites are gone. You can start the service now. Right In reverse order, that's what Constantine did to the church. Stop the persecution, but now here comes all kinds of anything goes into the church. Does that sound like today or what? Now, because of that, he laid the foundation, whether he realized it or not, for the birth of the Roman Catholic Church. Right? Let, me, let me close with that. Constantine found that with the Roman Empire being so vast, expansive, diverse, that not everyone would agree to forsake his or her religious beliefs to embrace Christianity. So Constantine allowed and even promoted the Christianization of pagan beliefs. Uh, completely pagan and utterly unbiblical beliefs were given Christian identities to merge them into a universal religion that eventually Rome can control, and they believe would help control the government that was starting to fracture, but also keep all the religions together, to basically unify the Roman Empire. That was what he did. Now, said all that to get to this, because you're going, where did Roman Catholicism start? They say, oh, it started with Peter, this long line of succession. Mm -mm. Oh, we're the one true church. We've been there. For, we are the remnants of the early church. Mm -mm. Now you see, here's where basically the birth of the first pope about 440 A.D., Gregory uh, the Pope, the, the Great was his name, whatever, and the birth of the first guy. Now, this is after Rome falls about 35 years later. So the first Pope basically starts here, out of this universal religion movement, okay? And then when Rome falls, guess who continues on? Okay, the, the Catholic Church, okay? But anyway, let, let me show you some examples of what he did. This also explains where they get their false teachings and false practices from. These are some of the religions that Constantine merged together, uh, Christianized, so that we can all worship together. The first one is the cult of Isis. Listen to this. And the cult of Isis was an Egyptian mother goddess religion, and it was absorbed into Catholicism by replacing Isis with 
Mary. This is where it came from. Many of the titles that were used for Isis, such as, listen, Queen of Heaven, Mother of God, Theotokos, God-bearer, were now attached to Mary. This came from the cult of Isis. Okay? Mary was given an exalted role in the Catholic Church, way beyond what obviously the Bible describes, and in order to attract Isis worshipers to a faith they would not otherwise embrace, this is what they did. In fact, many temples to Isis were in fact converted at this time into temples dedicated to Mary. This is the birth of Mary worship in the Catholic Church and Mariology. It's because the, the Constantine stopped the persecution. That was good, but he brought in this tolerance. How do we merge them all together? And he started to Christianize paganism, and these are leftover remnants in the Catholic Church. Let me give you a second one. Mithraism. Mithraism was another religion at that time of the Roman Empire, very popular for the 1st to the 5th centuries uh, among the Romans, especially the soldiers. Okay, Mithraism, listen to this. Uh, they merged it together, Constantine with Christianity. Listen to what they did. One of the key features of Mithraism was a, listen, a sacrificial meal which involved the eating of the flesh and the drinking of the blood of a bull. Mithras, the god of Mithraism, was, listen, present in the flesh and blood of the bull and when consumed, granted salvation to those who partook of the sacrificial meal. What does that sound like? The Eucharist, that they believe that's the actual blood and actual body, and then that's how you can gain salvation. It's Mithraism, paganized into Catholicism. And it was also known as the eating of one's God. Step two, Mithraism. That's just the Eucharist example. We already saw why do they worship Mary, where the Eucharist come from. Mithraism had, listen, seven sacraments. Interesting. And, and so, the, as the guy says, making the similarities between Mithraism and Roman Catholicism uh, too many to ignore. Okay, and this again, they took the Christian Act of Communion, merged it, and that's where he got. Another one, it's called a henotheist. Roman emperors and citizens were what was called henotheists. And henotheist means one God. Now, they basically believe in a plurality of gods, but they pick one God as basically their favorite God or what they would say is the most powerful God. Let me give you some examples in the day. For example, the Roman god Jupiter was considered supreme over the Roman pantheon of gods. Roman sailors were often worshipers of Neptune, the god of the oceans. When the Catholic Church absorbed Roman paganism, Constantine, the Stalin, let's blend them all together, it simply, listen, replaced the Roman practice of the pantheon of gods with saints. We don't call them Roman pantheon of gods. We call them saints. And just as the Roman pantheon of gods had a god of love, god of peace, god of war, god of strength, god of wisdom, on down the line, guess what the Catholic Church has? Saints. Saints who are what? In charge over what? All these same categories. You got a saint for this, and saint this, a Jude, and a saint this, and saint Michael, and they'll save you and you pray to them, and they'll help you with this because they're the god of luck or the god of this or the god of stop rain. That's all they did. It's just a ripoff of the Roman pantheon of gods. Again, the whole practices come not from the Bible. They come from a merging of a tolerant attitude that's being repeated in the church today, folks. I didn't have time to read. There was another church. Um, they changed their name to C3P Exchange or something. It used to be like Christ Community Church. And they even removed their cross. Because the cross, quote, is just one symbol of their faith, of the many faiths. What? This is, it's being repeated, which gave birth to the Roman Catholic Church. 
Okay, there's other examples. Uh, let me give you one more. The supremacy of the Roman. Where did the papacy come from? Why do you got to have a guy in charge, the Pope, who's supposed to be this all-supreme ruler? Well, that was off of the Roman emperors. Listen to this. With the city of Rome being, centered, uh, being the center of government for the Roman Empire, and with the Roman emperors living in Rome. Oh, by the way, where is, R- not Catholicism, Roman Catholicism headquartered? Over in Rome. I'm de- Okay, so I'm not making this up. So, so this is in Rome, and so Rome was the center of the government for the Roman Empire, and the Roman emperors lived in Rome, and the city of Rome rose to prominence in all facets of life. Constantine and his successors gave their support to the bishop of Rome as the, quote, supreme ruler of the church. This came from Constantine, again, right? And actually, in the time, other Christian bishops and Christians resisted this idea, because it's not biblical, Okay, of the Roman bishop being supreme, but the Roman bishop eventually rose to this supremacy, and due to the power and influence of the Roman emperors, he basically took charge of the religion. This is where the birth of the Pope. Now listen to this. In fact, there was a title the Romans called the Roman emperors. And here is the specific title that they were called, Pontifex Maximus. You know what that title is? That's the exact title of the Pope. That's the exact title of Roman emperors. So you had the Roman Catholic Church headed by a guy with the same title of the Roman Caesars. Why? Because that's what Constantine wanted to do. He wanted to merge them all together to unify everything, the governments and the religions. Roman Catholicism is not biblical Christianity. It didn't come from Christianity. It didn't come from the early church, the teachings of the Bible, the New Testament, Jesus or the apostles. They came as a spinoff of a tolerant movement trying to get all religions to come together. They blended the terminology and even their very practices are rooted in paganism today. Yet, and now for the Christian perspective. And here they show them, on, and it's like, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be The origin of the Catholic Church is the tragic compromise of Christianity with pagan religions. And uh, instead of proclaiming the gospel and converting pagans, the Catholic Church Christianized pagan religions and paganized Christianity, which means they basically are not sharing the gospel. It's a pseudo-Christian group, and they've deviated from the biblical truth and they've merged with pagan religions to create a universal, quote, church. Oh, by the way, the word Catholic, you know what the Catholic, Catholic means? Universal. The Roman universal church. Do your homework, and this is where it all came from. Now, this gave birth, real quick, we'll close, to what was called the Holy Roman Empire. Okay? Now, the Holy Roman Empire is basically what Western civilization calls the Dark Ages. Okay, because Rome fell in 476. Okay, the first pope uh, in practice was in 440. So Rome falls. These guys just continue on. Shortly after that, what do you have the birth in Western civilization? The Dark Ages. You know why it went dark? Because this is what took over. What took over was this ecclesiastical structure of the Holy Roman Empire with the Roman Catholic Universal Church that took over not just the religions, but also the government. 
This is where it came from. did not come from the scripture. And that continued on. You had a split eventually in 1054. You had the Eastern Orthodox, which split over some of these issues. But you had the Western part, the Roman church, that continues on even up till to this day. And then what happens is the Pope, they began to go beyond the religion, and they began to be the ones to institute who were going to be the rulers of the countries and the governments. So again, now they're at the point where they're controlling not just the religions, but now the governments. Why? Because that's what Rome did. It's built in their structure. By the way, what does Rome want to do right now? Exact same thing. Why is it that even the United States of America, every president for how long after they get elected, who eventually do they go visit with? You ever thought about that? Hey, with all due respect, what's that? what do you got to do with American policy? What is this? We're checking into you for what? Rome has never given up its ultimate desire. Rome looks at you and I as what's called the Protestant experiment. We're just a weird aberration. Their ultimate goal is to bring it all back together again. Not just the religions on the planet. That's what they're doing right now. But they also want control over the governments. Fast forward to Revelation uh, when it talks about the woman that rides the beast. We talked about this before. The woman that rides the beast, the Antichrist, the one world government system. Who's riding on top? Initially, who, who's controlling the beast? The one world religion, the harlot, Babylon the harlot. So if, in fact, that's who you're dealing with, the entity, guess what? They finally got back what they lost at the Protestant Reformation. But it's at a time when the Bible says the worst time in the history of mankind. You don't want to be there. It's a seven-year tribulation. And you're seeing the groundwork right now for history to be repeated. An attitude of tolerance coming in, even in the church where we're merging with other religions and we're backing up into the Rome, Roman arms again, and they're going to take control of the whole system. Is that wild or what? Okay, but that continued on, and again, what busted it? What busted it out for a period? The Protestant Reformation, the counter-cult movement. I love that word, okay? Uh, in the 1500s, Martin Luther launched the Protestant Reformation. It started before him, but we don't have time to get that, but he gets the credit a lot. John Calvin, of course, uh, in Switzerland, Ulrich Zwingli, and a large Anabaptist movement, uh, and turned around. The Holy Roman Empire continued to hold power after the Reformation, but the seeds of its demise had been sown after the Reformation, the church's imperial influence waned and the authority of the Pope curtailed. Europe, for a time, emerged from the Middle Ages, which is also called the Dark Ages. We'll get into certain things. Hey, if you disagreed, what happened? You ever hear the Inquisition? Right? It was also during that time during the Holy Roman Empire, because they had control of the governments, they also launched military campaigns. You know what those campaigns were called? The Crusades. I've said this before, now in this context, Christian, you do not have to justify and you shouldn't try. And there is no justification for the Crusades. But you don't have to justify, you don't have to give an excuse, you don't have to give an answer. Because guess what? That was from the Roman Catholic Church who did that, not biblical Christianity. Don't fall for that trap. Oh, you Christians, you were just as bad as the Muslims and stuff of that nature, and you've done horrible... I didn't do that, and the Bible doesn't condone that, and true Christianity didn't do that. But Roman Catholicism did, and I agree with you. It was horrible, it was egregious, and it's wrong. But that's not Christianity. Don't fall for that, okay? But for a time, we broke out of the Dark Ages. But what's happening? This is where we left off last week. We're going back to the spiritual Dark Ages. And the Roman Catholic Church is taking control. Where the Pope right now is coming over here, and he's treated like a pop star. And they've never wavered from their false teaching. They're a cult. And they're coming over here to take not only the religions, but they want their ultimate thing that they had back in the day, what they were birthed out of. We want to control all religions, 
all governments around the world. Okay, I was excited about it. Anyway, it's a cool study. But uh, next week, we're actually going to get into a new paragraph. So let's close in prayer. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries. And I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven. And that's because God is holy and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness or the wrong things that we have done have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin or unholiness uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma, even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy. We're not perfect like him. Uh, let's take a, a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you have ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay, how many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay, well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief, okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word? Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy, okay? And folks, let's be honest. We've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that, and it's just as bad. He knows the mind. He knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God. And you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. 
God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn. We, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it. And a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a of death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it, if he would grant them what's called a pardon, out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in his work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a of death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that? right now well this has been pastor billy crone of sunrise baptist church and and get a life ministries and if there's anything that we can do for you uh please don't hesitate uh to contact us uh our number our information will uh come up here on the screen shortly and uh, uh if there's anything we could do for you please don't hesitate to let us know uh thank you for 
uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.